Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Stephanie George, 23. Single mother, addicted to drugs. She made the mistake of letting her boyfriend store some drugs in her home in a lockbox. She got life without parole. Dickie Joe Jackson. 27 and a father of three. One of his kids was sick and needed a life-saving bone marrow transplant. At first, he tried fundraising the money to get it, but he wasn't successful. So he made the mistake of selling methamphetamine in order to try and pay for the operation. He received a life sentence for it. Robert Riley, like so many others, he started experimenting with marijuana at a young age. He got busted twice for it. Later in life, at 40, he was arrested for selling LSD. He was sentenced to die in jail. In most of these cases, the judges themselves say they wish they didn't have to impose the sentence. Take the case of Weldon Angelos, a 25-year-old record producer. He was convicted of selling marijuana a couple of times to an informant who claimed that he had a gun. He received more than twice as much time as he would have if he had hijacked an airplane, detonated a bomb in public, or even if he was a second-degree murderer. Weldon Angelos is going to be 80 by the time he gets out of jail. He has kids. Can you believe that? More time than a murderer for selling marijuana? The sentencing judge himself said he thought it was cruel, unjust, and even irrational to give this man that much time. But the law required him to do it. Stop and think about that for a minute. The judges themselves, in court, while they're delivering the sentence, are saying they think it's unfair but they're required to do it by law. Pretty crazy, right? I'm Alex Kreit, criminal law professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. You're probably asking yourself, how do we get to a place where judges can't judge, where nonviolent low-level drug offenders are getting longer sentences than many rapists and murderers? And the answer is one of the most terrifying aspects of our war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentencing. Remember those three words. So here's how it works. Think about a drug organization. You got the guy at the top, the kingpin, the one making all the money. Maybe he's a violent guy, a known murderer, the one the laws were supposedly designed to punish. Then you got all the people below him, the drivers, the couriers, a kid who's selling drugs after school, even the girlfriend of the dealer, if she takes a couple of voicemails or lets him store drugs at her house. Under the law, all of these people are considered conspirators. Now you might think, Surely they'll each receive a different sentence. The kingpin's going to be punished more than the people below him. But what I'm saying is the mandatory minimum sentencing laws treat them all the same. They're sentenced not based on the role that they played in the offense, but just on the type and quantity of drugs involved. And that right there is just plain wrong. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen of America and all of our listeners around the world. This is AJC Radio. If you're wondering what in the world am I listening to just moments ago, 
unfair sentencing, abuse of power, and the sentencing laws of this nation are out of control. Tonight, AJC Radio takes a look at the horror of the injustice of sentencing in America's courts. Folks, hang on to your seats. This is AJC Radio coming live from Colorado Springs right now, 58 degrees. Let's take off. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and William Williams. And Lisa is joining us by remote tonight. And I'll tell you what, right now, uh, this is going to be a humdinger of a show. We're talking about some horrible things happening within our judicial system. Nothing new there, uh, but another side of cruelty and just ain't, just ain't plain right. Excuse the English. Lisa, if you can... Uh, Read the disclaimer for our listeners. Absolutely. We just would like to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide legal advice. We want you to contact your own personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. And also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend just a little bit of your evening with us. And thank you for that, Lisa. We appreciate it. And I'll tell you, folks, right now, uh, this is a troubling situation in this country. Outrageous sentencing uh, doesn't – you heard the story there, uh, William, the three people that the gentleman named in the opening clip, life sentences. Uh, for non – he said one of the guys could have detonated a bomb in the middle of the street or an airplane or any – and he gets a sentence far worse even in somebody that's charged with second-degree murder. I, would you help me with this I, 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 I was stunned to just hear that. I mean, that's amazing because what they were simply pointing out was the fact that these guys had you know, no priors um, and actually it, it were nonviolent offenses. But they were, they were sentenced as if they were violent, you know, as if they had done some kind of you know, horrendous or, you know, act of, of terror or something like that. And it's, it's amazing. And it all fall back to mandatory minimums where the judges are sitting there saying, I have to because well, of the law. Well, it's not only mandatory minimums. You're dealing just with judges that are abusing, abusing their power. That's true. Uh, at the end of the day, they put a face on mandatory minimums. They, well, we just, if people would stand up and fight against it. We have learned in the IRP6 case that there was a minimum or whatever they called it, for these guys, the RP6, Dave Apollo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker of the IRP6, uh, where Judge Christine Arguello gave Cliff uh, some folks that even had a far more, far more egregious situation, didn't come to court, didn't comply with the court order, was out playing golf, basically jumped bond. And and they were their amount of money that they were accused of and actually admitted to being guilty were given a less sentence than the RP six could have ever received. Yeah, and I mean you're talking about uh, this a a very well known case as far as um, in Colorado on the tenth circuit where you have you had a group of people who uh, got convicted for a billion dollars or was I'm sorry a hundred million dollars in uh, tax fraud. They they basically defied the court. The uh, court marshal, the um, federal marshals, had to go get them on the day of their sentence. I mean, they weren't even taken into uh, into custody immediately. 
they were out, like you said, playing golf, and then uh, just defying uh, the judge, same judge, uh, Christine Arguello, and um, she still gave them sentences which seemed so light compared to to the things that they did. I mean, these people didn't even show up for court on some days, just basically told the judge, you know, in, uh, in no uncertain terms, screw you. We don't care what you have to say, and their sentences still did not match up to the crimes that they committed. Not at all. Uh, we're, we're given less time uh, than the RP6, who never had a criminal record, never had been in trouble with the law, no criminal record whatsoever for any of these men. Uh, and we're going to get into that. And one point we're going to raise tonight, then before I get there, uh, joining us tonight is going to be Molly Gill. She's the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for FAM uh, and uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. She's going to be joining us tonight as well. Also, Kara uh, uh, Gotch, uh, she's Director of Strate- Strategic Initiatives, uh, and she's also going to be joining us as well. She deals, I guess, uh, in regards to sentencing reform. She's going to give her insight on it. Uh, I'll tell you what, and she's, uh, she sounds like she, it says she's a member of the Sentencing Project. Uh, these are people that are very much involved as advocates uh, that push very hard to reform sentencing, Dennis. When you talk about... Uh, you have these experts. You have advocates all over Capitol Hill. You have members of Congress saying, look, we need sentencing reform. Some stuff has actually been has happened. Legislation has been passed. But these things that we're going to deal with tonight deal with those issues. But one issue I, I'd raised uh, to someone last week, I said, here's the problem. When a judge asks a defendant to stand, when would you like to make a statement prior to me imposing sentence? The indication is, is that you're going to, you may be able to persuade the judge based upon your, your statement that perhaps the system failed here. Perhaps you would show mercy to me because I didn't do this crime. At the end of the day, the judge's minds are made up of what they're going to do. This is a front, if you will. It's just, that's all it is, is to say we want to give you a chance to speak. You don't care about what I'm talking about. Because your mind is set, I'm going to sentence you. We, we talked about uh, somebody last week, they got sentenced to 1,100 years. The lifespan of a, uh, the lifespan, average lifespan of a person is about 70 years old. If they go older than that, of course, it, it, you know, 80, 90, but for the most part, the average uh, due accumulation is about 70, 72 years old. Why would you sentence someone to 1,100 years? How many lives is that? That, that's, that? It doesn't make any sense. That's, but what it's about is uh, we're going to destroy uh, any possibility that you might think that there's some hope here. That's right. And, and they do that. And it, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Just like you said, I mean, if I live 70, if I live 80 or 90, 1,100 years. And then they give somebody a double life sentence, two life sentences without parole. Two life sentences with a 50-year tail. Wow. What? Two life sentences. Doesn't make sense. Not this, at all. This is about the way the system. We're going to deal with all that tonight, folks. This, this sentencing thing goes beyond anything you can imagine when it comes to cruel and unusual punishment. And like you said, Dennis, I agree. It is to get into the minds of these inmates, strip you of every bit of hope. Well, why are you called the Department of Corrections then? Back in the, in the old times... A indeterminate sentence meant that, say I'm going to get, you know, say I'm going to get 15 years. 
but I'm going to give you eight years indeterminate, eight to 15 years in indeterminate amount of time. What that meant, the original thought of that process was in that time that you could go into prison, work your way up, do well, uh, don't get in any trouble. You're probably never going to see the 15 years. And you could probably walk in that eight or that seven, depending on how you perform. It was an incentive program. Today in America, when they give you an indeterminate sentence, eight years to life, two days to life, a year to life, that's a mental anguish situation, and it has nothing to do with you doing better. I knew a guy that got sentenced to two days to life for doing my wrongful conviction and incarceration. He got sentenced to two days to life. When I met him, he was on his 25th year in prison. This is a problem that we got to deal with tonight, folks, and it's something that needs to be considered. Uh, And there's a lot going on in our country right now. Uh, We talk about the disparities. We talk about uh, the... uh, the lack of justice in the land today. And we wonder why we are faced with the problems we are faced with uh, in this country is just unbelievable. But we're going to address those issues tonight. Uh, You're going to hear also a little bit uh, from the sentencing statements by the IRP-6, again, who have been wrongfully convicted, have been sitting in prison for four years, for four years, for nothing. And their statements were made. And I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to share what we can with that, uh, and we believe that it, it, it will have an impact that, you know what, but if a judge is sitting on the on the bench as a dictator, uh, it doesn't matter what you say. They intend to impose whatever they choose exactly. to do. I believe in my heart of hearts and based upon statistics uh, that uh, judges are given too much power in our judicial system, and there's no oversight in reality. None. There is no oversight. They have a front oversight, like the appellate court, who's whose goal is to uphold the brethren's decision. And anytime you have a, a DNA that exonerates an individual and that judge has a po- has the power to say, no, I don't care what you have uh, that would exonerate this, this person. We don't want to see it. We don't care about it. He's going to stay in prison or she, because I said so. Now, you know, that's when we start have to understand as a nation that maybe we we've given these judges too much power maybe we maybe we need to relook at our justice system which we are doing in a sense and say come on i mean if we have evidence that can prove someone to be innocent why not allow it so that we can get this person off and the thing is i mean you look at all these dna cases and when you can go to walgreens and get a DNA kit, or you can, you know, you can go on Jerry Springer, and they can do a DNA test. You can you can go just about anywhere nowadays and get a DNA test done, and you know, it'll come back in a few weeks at the most. You know, Ancestry.com, Twenty One and Me. You can find out what the DNA is. It is it is a tragedy that in any case where there is, uh, you know you know, physical, biological evidence that could be that could be tested and proven by DNA, that that is not a requirement. That How that exactly. is not a requirement for any case with DNA is beyond me. And a judge, if that, if 
there is DNA evidence. A judge should not be allowed to even move forward with a case. Before we do anything else, you got some DNA. Before you do anything else, we're going to test the DNA. And if it is not the person that you guys are accusing of this crime, then this case is dismissed. You, this is DNA that says this person committed the crime. It's not the, it's not the defendant. That case is thrown out, and especially if it comes back later and the, and the defendant is, has spent time in prison, and you say, okay, well, now we have some DNA. And, and the thing that gets me that uh, before the, it even gets to the judge is that the DNA can be proven that this was not the person, and the prosecutor will still fight. No, even though the DNA proves they did not do it, I still want them to stay in wow. prison because some other evidence – uh, you know, substant- uh, circumstantial evidence looks like it could have uh, circumstantially been this person where the DNA says it wasn't them. And the judge should be held accountable to ensure that that evidence is brought forward and applied to the case. And the fact that that is not uh, an absolute requirement shows the, the failure and the lack of justice of the U.S. so-called justice system. Well, that's, that's true. I mean, it happened in the IRP6 case. I mean, it happened in that case where they were not able to present evidence that they needed. The judge tailored well, things. Well, again, it's an abuse of power uh, by these uh, by these judges and by legislators who have allowed these state laws, and that's primarily where they come from, is the state that incorporates mandatory minimums that does these things. And federally, uh, the government is saying we can't uh, we can't have it, uh, and we're not we can't deal with it. So. Uh, we'll see uh, what comes from that as we, again, hope that legislators up in Congress, the people that we have talked to, Cliff, uh, this seems a very, very important issue uh, that these folks definitely want to uh, want to deal with. Uh, going to some current news now, uh, I don't know if you heard about it, Sanford, Florida, a Florida man who fired at George Zimmerman's vehicle during a road rage confrontation has been sentenced to 20 years in prison. Uh, it says that at the sentencing hearing Monday morning, Zimmerman said 38-year-old Matthew Epperson showed no regard for human life. Let me make sure I hear this correctly. Oh, my God. Oh. Zimmerman said the man that killed a unarmed black man, teenager, teenager excuse me, uh, Trevon Martin, yes. shot him in cold blood, killed him. He, this is, this is, these are his, his words. Zimmerman said 38-year-old Matthew Epperson showed no regard for human life. During the May 2015 May, May 2015 confrontation, and even seemed joyful because he mistakenly thought he'd killed Zimmerman. Zimmerman, as you know, is the former neighborhood watch volunteer who was acquitted of second-degree murder after fatally shooting unarmed teenager Trayvon Martin in 2012. Uh, Epperson was convicted by a uh, Seminole County ju- jury last month of attempted second-degree murder, armed aggravated assault, and shooting into a vehicle. Apperson testified at trial that he acted in self-defense after Zimmerman flashed a gun. Zimmerman disputed that. Well, what do you... Wow. What is he going to say? Yeah, I, I did point a gun at him. So at the end of the day, now, you acquit wow. this man for killing Trayvon Martin. Now, this man says you had a gun. He knows you're Zimmerman. He knows you killed Trayvon Martin. You know what? He said better. It's going to be you before it's me. But they hear that argument and say, oh, okay, he had no right. How hypocritical is the system? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that Zimmerman said that this man showed no concern 
for a human life. Right. Exactly. Zimmerman made this statement with a straight face. He he said that someone at anybody showed no concern for human life when he killed a teenage boy. Unarmed. Yeah. Unarmed. And unarmed. Walked, unarmed. And walked unarmed. away from it. And, and walked <laughs> away from it without without any without any consequence. Exactly. And and he should have been thrown under the jail and sentenced to the chair just for that statement coming out of his mouth. To be there honest with you, I mean you're ta- you 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 served not a no time for killing an unarmed teenager with a with a a bottle of tea and it was a skittles. skittles. You shot him dead and followed him, pursued him with the intent to harm him after being told. To go the other way, leave this young boy alone. He did it, in, and you're telling me a judge allowed him to let that come out of his mouth, wow. and then sentenced the other guy to 20, twenty years. Years when Zimmerman wow. flashed the gun. Wait a minute, man! He killed that kid. He may kill me. Wow. But he said he. <laughs> I can't even. Wow. I can't even. Uh, yeah, he says he says he, he says he didn't flash, he didn't flash a gun. He said my windows were up and and they're tinted, so there's no way he could he could see a gun. What kind of argument is that? I'll tell you what, it's it's messed up. I got to share this, and we're gonna go to break and come back with our guest, Willie Smith Ward, sentenced to 50 years in prison for stealing a rack of ribs. Did you hear what? that? What? <laughs> Willie Smith Ward was sentenced to 50 years in prison. For stealing a rack of ribs, excuse me, Ward's lengthy rap sheet likely affected the decision of the jurors who required two minutes to convict Ward and roughly an hour to determine his sentence. Number one, I don't know how a jury is determining the sentence of another citizen. That's usually not, unless it's the death penalty, uh, the jury doesn't, is not even supposed to chime in on that. Now, I don't care what his previous record was. Yeah, how do you, how do you take into account his previous record if it had nothing to do with this nothing crime? Nothing to do with That's, this crime. I'm, I'm, I'm sure and, the prosecutors It says here, Ward, uh, roughly an hour to determine the sentence of the jury. His previous convictions included burglary, attempted robbery, cocaine possession, and theft, among others. Not one of those crimes. You don't see armed robbery. Or, or, and I'm not saying it's right. But you're going to sentence this man for getting some barbecue to 50 years in prison? 50 years. Yeah, ladies wow. and gentlemen, I'll tell you right now, the system is out of control sentencing in America. We're going to deal with it on the other side of this break. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, Dennis Merritt, William Williams. We're coming right back. Folks, pull up a chair. It's getting ready to get very interesting on AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, 
we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Welcome back into AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight is no exception as we begin to visit a very disturbing epidemic, if you will, in this nation. And goes to the, to the cause of over-incarceration, mass incarceration. And it is the sentencing that, are, that is coming out of courtrooms every day in this nation that is completely outrageous. Taking up space in prisons. And there's a lot of people, folks, in prison that are dealing with uh, really just outrageous sentencing, even upon being guilty for the crime that they committed. The sentence, they say that the, the time does not fit the crime. We're starting to see this in, in, a, in a huge uh, overflow, Dennis, in this country where people are just going to jail. It was brought to our attention. We had, the, I believe, the Scott sisters. Uh, who were sentenced to uh, 40 to 50 years, is, is that correct? Or for, is it $9 in merchandise? It was a robbery that netted no more than $11, and the original sentence was uh, double life. Double life Wait a minute. for Wait a minute. $11. Wait a minute. How's, how is that even possible? How is that possible? 
because it doesn't even the amount doesn't even reach the level they would call that petty theft, which is a misdemeanor. That is a misdemeanor. Eleven dollars is. I don't even know if that's a misdemeanor. That is. Is that a? Is that a? That's a a citation. That's a ticket. Yes, a ticket. Do our community service, or you know, go collect some trash on the side of the road, and your debt to society is done. Eleven dollars. You give us double life. Who is the judge? Did any? There was any repercussions to this judge? I mean that 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 is outrageous. Well, the thing is that. Uh, this was in in uh, Mississippi, and the Mississippi Court of Appeals upheld the convictions, and the Supreme Court denied their petitions for appeal in uh, in '97, and appealed to vacate the conviction in '98. The governor uh, Haley Barber denied a petition for clemency in 2006. So you're talking about uh, this this happened in in '93, yeah, and decades later. In 2006, they're still saying you haven't paid your debt to society, your $11 debt. You haven't oh. paid that uh, all the you know, 20 years later. That's, this is sick. And, a, and this was the story where uh, finally they, um, the, the governor suspended their, their sentence on condition that one of the sisters donated a kidney to her other sister who was, uh, okay. who was suffering kidney failure. I'm okay with that. But... Uh, but you're asking for body parts as a compliance of a of right a, eleven dollars. Now you can get out if you give a kidney. But give a kidney away. They stayed in till 2011. So you 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 are talking about almost 20 years of uh for eleven dollars. How how did any judge? How did any prosecutor? How did anybody go along with saying that is a reasonable sentence? That it's, is sickening. And then it's estimated that they, they, they're going to be on parole uh, for the rest of their life and, and pay a uh, supervision fee. So, yeah, we let you out of prison, but uh, you, you're going to still pay society uh, by remaining on parole. Just in case you do something else, we can put you back in. Prison. Well, well, that, that we're going to deal with that. We're very honored right now to uh, bring in uh, our very special guest tonight. Uh, I'm going to say Kara because I don't want to uh, butcher her last name. I won't let her do that as far as announcing how her last name is presented. And Kara, are you with us? I am here. How are you? I'm doing well. Kara, how do you pronounce your last name? Gotch. Kara Gotch. Gotch. Okay. I didn't, I'm like, man, I don't want to say that wrong. So I want to. That's all right. So I'm just going to. Gotch uh, like gotcha. That's gotcha. Like a gotcha. Go. That's how you there we go. That's just like that's that. Really easy. Thank you so much, Kara. I don't know how much of the conversation of the show you've heard tonight. Uh, troubling issues in this country uh, with sentencing, uh, the abuse of power in this nation. Uh, we were talking about the young man who got uh, who received 50 years for stealing a rack of ribs. Uh, that's just one of many crazy issues that we're dealing with in this country. People that are may sometimes may have made a mistake. Uh, they get sentenced to just these outrageous sentences, uh, the abuse of power by judges, the God complex, if you will, in our courts today. Uh, we have a big problem in this country. And we, of course, will go to the, the mandatory minimums uh, that state legislators are passing as law 
Now Congress has come in and said uh, mandatory minimum is acceptable. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a rundown of what you do. We know that you are a, a strong advocate uh, representing the sentencing project, uh, and we want to hear what you have to say to enlighten us on how do we get out of this mess uh, that we're in right now with sentencing in this country. Sure. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me. It's a real pleasure. I work with the Sentencing Project, which is a 30-year-old criminal justice reform organization. Uh, We got our start many years ago trying to promote uh, promote alternative uh, punishments during criminal trials, offering judges alternatives to incarceration, particularly in low-level cases, in an attempt to divert people who really didn't need incarceration to learn their lesson that the crime they committed was wrong and probably could do a better job of serving outside of the incarceration, outside of a prison or outside of a jail, probably have better shot at rehabilitation. Uh, But we've sort of evolved over the years into a research and advocacy um, organization promoting sentencing reform, particularly around drug crimes, um, looking at things that like life at, without parole, uh, life sentences, the wisdom of uh, looking at the wisdom of incarcerating people who are, there, are in their 70s and 80s and clearly no longer a threat to public safety. We're also very concerned about um, the rights of the formerly incarcerated and people with criminal convictions. Many people might not know that even once you've served your served your time in prison um, and off and are off of paper, you're not on probation or parole, you lose many rights, like the right to vote or the right to uh, live in public housing or receive financial benefits like food stamps or welfare. Um, there's a lot of obstacles for people also in getting a job, and we're really concerned about that kind of thing. We're also very concerned about the significant racial disparity that exists in the criminal justice system. Um, For a child born today, there's a one in three uh, chance that they, uh, a child who is African-American boy born today, has a one in three chance of spending some time during his life in incarceration. If you're a Hispanic boy born today, you have a one in six chance. Uh, But if you are white, a white boy, you have a 1 in 17 chance of spending time in incarceration. And that's really troubling, and it should be a concern to anybody who cares about fairness and justice and equal equity in our in our, our laws. Well, I think the problem is, Kara, that I think you hit it on the nail. People simply don't care. They don't care. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and this is my thought, and I – I use this analogy a lot. I'm going to use it again, and I want to get your thoughts. I'm going to ask you a question about another thing here. If I go to – let's use a different store. If I go to Sears, and I have a line of credit with Sears, and I have a balance owing of $2,000. Now, once I pay that bill, when I come back into Sears a month from now, and I go to the counter with my goods, and I pull out my Sears card, They're never going to mention to me that I owed a bill of $2,000. The reason they're not is because the debt's been paid. So we say as a society, pay your debt to society. We won't even, and we're going to go into the wrongfully convicted, basically where uh, the the United States of America has an IOU to me for seven years of my life, for me personally, for being wrongfully convicted, but those people that have been wrongfully convicted. So – 
my, what's so crazy about the system and the sentencing that goes on, there's no consideration for the families, for the people that, wait a minute, is this the answer to re- rehabilitate a person? I'm a living witness that it doesn't take 10 years. It doesn't take five years for a person to get it when they go behind bars. That's an immediate hit of reality. That's a wake-up call. And my thought is, Kara, and I'm going to ask you this question. If the judges have the power that they have, I think it goes back to voting again. In many places across this country, you vote judges in. But then when you have the corruption of judges who are appointed by presidents, what, what are we going to do? There's no accountability for what these judges are doing. How do we fix that, Kara, and how do we address that? Yeah, well, you raise a really important point. I mean, it's important to know that, you know, there's such variation across the country in, in um, how judges operate and how the criminal justice systems operate in each individual state, but also at the federal level and also at the county and municipal level. And you're right, many uh, judges are elected, and they are, um, you know, they are want to win elections, and so can, are swayed by political the political winds. And if the public perception or the public desire is to be tough on crime, and the answer to our social problem is to lock up more people, and the answer to drug addiction is to lock up more people, which has been probably for the last 40 years and is part of the reason why we have mass incarceration, then judges are going to respond. Elected judges are going to respond um, and behave the way they believe the public wants them to behave. And I think that's true not just for judges, but for politicians who pass the sentencing laws and the criminal justice laws that we have on the books and are by and large what causes um, the – people to go to prison. I mean, many times, and this is true at the state level and particularly at the federal level, there isn't that much discretion. When you have laws, statutes passed by legislatures and or Congress, mandatory minimum sentencing laws, uh, judges don't have the discretion to to sentence someone less than they, even if they think it's warranted, because they have, you know, the case in front of them, which by most have already been pled out. Most defendants never go to trial, never have their day in court. They plead out their case. That's just the way our criminal justice system works. And so the judge looks at, has the defendants pled guilty. They look at the offense. They look at their criminal history. They, there's a graph, and they pick out the sentence that goes with that offense. There's really not that much discretion involved many times. Um, and the defendant it gets that sentence because, a member of a state legislature or a member of Congress decided that was the right decision, never having met that defendant, never knowing the circumstances or the background of that case. Uh, they are, you know, operating remotely but deciding what the appropriate punishment is, never knowing the facts of each individual case. So it's, you know, it's a challenge, and it's something I think what you said earlier I come back to is, it, nothing will change in our criminal justice system. If people think it's unfair, if they think it's racially disparate and p- treats people who should be treated the same differently, it's not going to change unless the public and 
good people like you and your listeners really take notice and start talking about the issue, start talking about the need for us to look at our social problems in this country through a wider lens than just lock them up and throw away the key, that there's got to be another way around it. We've got to be investing in education. We've got to be investing in mental health care and substance abuse treatment and the like uh, instead of just locking people up and hoping that they're cured of whatever ails them or caused them to commit a crime. That's critical. But the public has got to demand that, and then you will see lawmakers and court actors behave differently. No, absolutely. And uh, I think and, – and one one point there, too, Kara, is the reentry uh, programs uh, that are far in between uh, as far as what's available to inmates upon reentering society, thus reentry. Uh, there's a lot of folks that talk about it. Um, I came across some information today. Uh, Colorado Springs Fellowship Church, Pastor Rose Banks, uh, has initiated a reentry program that is – Above anything I've ever seen that we're getting ready to hopefully uh, introduce to advocacy groups, members of Congress, uh, because we, they, you don't have a lot of solid systems out there that are saying, look, now that you're here, because whether people believe it or not, when this type of abuse in sentencing happens, mentally it begins to destroy the belief or faith in a system upon these inmates getting back into society. They come out of prison believing what they just went through. Nobody cares about them. So did, imagine the challenge and the work that's involved with trying to, there's so many pieces to this puzzle that helps criminal justice reform happen. And I think, are you folks involved with any reentry stuff upon your criminal justice reform stuff that you do. It says here that uh, uh, you are the director of strategic initiatives at the Sentencing Project, where you oversee the organization's federal advocacy work and develop special projects and partnerships to advance the organization's mission of reducing mass incarceration. Well, the key, one of the key things to that is reentry. We're going to be doing a show of that on next Thursday. Give me your thoughts on that, Kara, as far as how important is that as part of the piece to the puzzle that you guys are doing. It's critically important. Uh, reentry is something that is so important for us to get right because recidivism in this country uh, is very high among people who come out of prisons and jails. And if we don't address the needs of people coming out of the criminal justice system and help them get uh, employment, get housing, get access to education, life skill services, if they don't get the rehabilitation they need and the aid they need coming out, the likelihood of returning to incarceration or committing a new offense skyrockets. And so it's, not, it's to everyone's benefit that people have access to programming and assistance once they come out. And that's a role that has often been taken, uh, you know, is carried out by the faith community, many faith community, faith organizations run um, programs for people who are returning home after incarceration. Um, many nonprofit organizations run those kinds of services. Fortunately, for the last eight years, there has been some federal funding uh, through a, a law passed um, in the final year of the Bush administration called the Second Chance Act that provides funding to states 
and local government allow, uh, aid to aid people coming out of prison. Surpri- that Surprisingly or not, that actually has had a lot of bipartisan support and has received funding every year for the last eight years, and I'm hoping uh, that that will continue for for some time to come because that's a desperate need. There's about 600,000 people every year who leave prison, millions of people every year leave um, jails. So there's a real need to fund those kinds of programs to help people get back on their feet. You know, prison really, it just we, – we create immense challenges. I've had the opportunity to meet in – the last year and a half, a number of the commutees that uh, President Obama has um, released, who is yeah. granted clemency to, and many of those people are have uh, life sentences. Uh, about a third of the people who've received a commutation uh, during the Obama tenure have had life sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, and these are people who have served 20, 25, 30 years, and they come out crippled, absolutely mm-hmm. crippled. They have missed all the technological advancement that's happened over the last 30 years, cell phones, computers, the Internet. And imagine what it's like to get a job having never been exposed to any of that. Um, it's it's nearly impossible. And the, just they a lot of folks are just talking about coming out and figuring out the bus system or – knowing when they can go to the bathroom because they've been so programmed to ask for permission for every single thing they do. It's like they don't know how to even care for themselves. They don't know when to get up. I mean, you take away a person's, their core being, their individuality, their independence, and then expect them to function in the real world. It's, it's, it's undoable for anyone. Um, but, I mean, it, it, we really do cripple people who have been incarcerated, and particularly people who are there for long periods of time. That transition is so desperate, um, and it takes time. It takes a lot of time. So we need to be patient, but we also need to help people, and everyone really has a part to play in that. Well, Kara, one thing is interesting that you say. I'm looking here at, at, at your uh, information. Uh, it says here that you help lead the multi-year effort to reform the notorious 100-to-1 crack cocaine sentencing disparity that resulted in the 2010 passage of the Faith Sentencing Act. Uh, Your sentencing reform advocacy was honored in 2011 by Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, in 2010, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, and I was part of a, a group of people and organizations who worked for a number of years to try and advance that. The Fair Sentencing Act um, addressed the 100 to 1 crack cocaine sentencing disparity. I think probably a number of your listeners might remember that back in the 1980s, uh, crack cocaine was uh, a prominent drug, a relatively new drug on the scene in the early 80s. that is essentially powder cocaine cooked with baking soda and water and and cooked into uh, rock formations, but was very inexpensive and became very popular during the 1980s. And uh, so what was very important to know about the the onset of that drug was that there was a significant uh, sort of 
turf war that ensued that was extremely violent um, that existed between gangs for who sought to compete to sell this drug. And there was a number in the mid-1980s and m- number of high-profile deaths around um, crack. Len Bias, who was a University of Maryland basketball yeah. star, died, people might remember, uh, a, day, a day after being, dra- being the first-round draft pick for the Boston Celtics. Yeah. And um, there was a desire around that time, after his death, Tip O'Neill at the time from Boston was the Speaker of the House, a Democrat. Uh, there was a desire to act quickly, to be aggressive, and and stop crack use. And so what they created in a matter of weeks was the harsh mandatory minimums for not just crack, for all drugs, but particularly for crack cocaine. And they made a five-year mandatory minimum for anyone who possessed at least five grams of crack, which is the equivalent of about two sugar packets, and a 10-year mandatory minimum for anyone who had about 50, who had 50 grams of crack, which is about the size of a candy, the weight of a candy bar. What's important to know about that is when they created mandatory minimums for powder at that same time, you to get the same sentence for a powder cocaine uh, offense, you had to have a hundred times that quantity that you would have for crack, even so, though they are chemically identical substances. You had so a hundred times the amount. So, Carol, why did so, why did they do that? Uh, sorry. So the consequence of that was this had this impacted the African American community disproportionately. About eighty percent of the people in the Federal Bureau of Prisons subject to the mandatory minimums for crack were African American. Maybe about twenty five percent of pe- defend, uh, people in prison for powder cocaine were African American. So there was a big racial disparity in who is getting these crack sentences and who was not. So there was. This law was the law for about 25 years. In 2010, um, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which narrowed, unfortunately, did not eliminate the disparity between crack and powder. It raised the quantity trigger and got rid of the mandatory minimum for simple possession of crack. Um, and so, as a result, we see a lot less, a lot fewer crack cocaine cases coming into the federal docket. Uh, the, Many sentences were made retroactive, so people serving long crack cocaine sentences were able to petition to get out or get a sentence reduction. Um, and actually, over the last few years, the last three or, uh, three or four years, we've seen a significant decline in the number, not all, uh, many of whom are crack cocaine cases. About 30,000 people have uh, uh, there's been about 30,000 person reduction in the BOP prison population. Wow, Dennis, hey, that is uh, you're, you're giving us some good information, uh, Kara. My name is Dennis. I just have a, a question for you. Uh, what sure, do, sure. What do you think about uh, removing the uh, felony uh, checkbox from uh, employers' applications? To how that would affect because it, it's even though you serve your time, you get out and you try to do the right thing. You try to get a job, and it's almost impossible uh, because you have to, you know, you have to say whether or not you are a felon. And most of the time, when you 
and you check that block, you're pretty much not going to get the job. So I was just asking, trying to get your take on what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really critical issue that has actually been championed mostly by um, people who are formerly incarcerated themselves because of their direct experience in trying to find a job and get a job. You know, I think it's important for people to keep in mind the ban the box movement isn't just about trying to say, oh, no, there's not going to be any sort of – examination of people's background when they trying to get a job but it's trying to get rid of the blatant discrimination that happens you know it's once you know to it's when people apply for a job and they have to indicate on an application uh whether or not they check a box that says they've been convicted of a felony or sometimes they even ask for arrest records you know, most of the time, those applications illegally will go into the circular file case, the garbage. Uh, you, uh, EEOC standards do not allow for employers to indiscriminately discriminate against someone simply because they have a criminal record. You can um, only can you um, consider a person's criminal record if it is directly related to the job function of that individual or of that position. And so taking that question off is really important because it gives folks an opportunity to get in on interviews to make their case why they're the most qualified. And only at the end, after an employer has had an opportunity to meet a candidate, to get to know their qualifications and to fully appreciate their qualifications, can they consider, can they then sort of examine that person's potential criminal record? But they also have to make a case that it relates to the actual job. Yes, you wouldn't want to hire a bank robber to be a bank teller. That's, you know, a legitimate exclusion. But right. not hiring someone um, to paint, you know, to become a, a painter because they might have sold marijuana, those are not – you know, those are not related and not necessarily a threat to security of that position. No, so you absolutely. need to make justifications for excluding people. No, and, and that's, a, that's a good point to be made. Carol, let me ask you one more question. We're gonna get, how much time do you have with us? Are you, I understand you had about 30 minutes. That you can, can you come back with us on the other side of the break, or, or do you have to be So somewhere? I'm happy to stay until 9. I'm not sure how long your break is, but I'm certainly available until – Oh, I'm sorry, not nine. Um, well, seven o'clock, I guess, your time. Or is it six o'clock your time? Or No, seven, seven o'clock your time. time. Sorry about that. Seven o'clock. So what I'm going to do, it's uh, it's about seven o'clock. It's five till seven here. Um, and I appreciate you uh, sharing what you said, but I got a question for you, and I want to ask if your organization, what you do, what we have noticed as an advocacy group uh, is the failure to address white-collar injustice. And we can talk about the drugs, and, and that's, that's all well and good. But when you take families, um, professionals, if you will, that's a different breed. These are white-collar individuals, and you lock them up wrongfully. That's a big impact, and it, does, it doesn't have to be 20 years or 30 years to be an impact. Uh, what, do you guys address those issues about the injustice with white-collar crimes? Because there's disparity there as well. 
Yeah, so we don't necessarily make a dis- uh, we don't necessarily make a distinction between white collar and non white collar crimes. I mean, our organization is very much concerned with mass incarceration and what is fueling mass incarceration, and those tend to be crimes that are associated with the drug war or associated um, with you know sort of typical street crime. Now, if we are very also, however, concerned about the impact, the collateral consequences of incarceration, and also and how that does affect the family. You know, I think there isn't enough attention paid to particularly children of people who are incarcerated, uh, who rely obviously on their their parents, their mothers and fathers to provide for them financially, but also emotionally. And it leaves real scars on them. And we need to think about if we're going to use incarceration, taking someone from their family, from their household, um, you know, is that the best way to send a message? Um, And certainly if someone has, is not a threat to public safety, uh, incarceration may not be the right answer. Kara, what I'm going to do, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to let you give, say, tell the folks how they can get a hold of you. Kara, I'm going to reach out to you and send you some information uh, about a classic poster child case of what you just said. Uh, okay. And the, uh, the, the, these men are known as the IRP6. Uh, Washington Post did a story on the injustice that happened to these IT professionals. Their families have been affected in a huge, huge way. I, I kind of get the sense talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners get the same sense, that your passion and your drive is to institute justice and to find a way to, to alleviate the, the concerns of this nation. I'm going to send you that information, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to follow up with you uh, here in the next day or so, uh, and maybe we can talk and, and get into some of that and see what, what we'd like to do. It takes organizations to come together, whether, regardless whether you deal with sentencing. Ours is the platform of a microphone. Uh, to talk to people, as well as an advocacy group known as the Just Cause, to reach out and define these issues and collectively come together uh, to bring solution. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely. I'm happy to continue this conversation. And obviously, you know, we're never going to sort of solve these problems of, unless all of us work together. Absolutely. Kara, it's been an indeed pleasure. Uh, you have enlightened our, our people. You've enlightened the studio and, and us definitely yeah. tonight. Uh, I'm going to be in touch with you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be doing a show on reentry. We'd love to invite you back to get your thoughts on that. That's going to be happen, happening a week from Thursday. If you have time, if not, that's fine. If you want to call in and give a comment or something, you're, you are always welcome here. And you definitely have found a friend here at AJC Radio on a Just Cause. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you all. Okay, and we'll be back in touch. Thank you so much. How can Before you go, Kara, how can people get a hold of you? That say, look, this yeah, the, lady's talking some stuff I understand. I need to know how to get a hold of her. Yeah, I would invite everyone to uh, see us, uh, go to our website the, for the Sentencing Project. It's www.sentencingproject.org. And you can call us, email us, write us a letter. Okay. Thank you for your service to this nation, Carrie. You're doing a great work, and we appreciate you so much. And we will definitely be in touch, okay? You have a safe rest of the evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, there you have it. Uh, this lady is just, uh, this lady is doing some things. Dennis, I'll tell you what. Uh, when you get the, get the 
endorsement, if you will, uh, for your work from Congressman, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, who we just did a show on a couple of weeks ago on Spotlight on Capitol Hill. I tell you what, that speaks volumes. And she's in the know. Kara is in the know, Cliff, that seems to be engaged uh, with this growing uh, concern and this growing problem. This is something that's awesome uh, that has to be looked at. Kara seems to be doing some big things. Absolutely. She understands all of the uh, the dynamics of what happens when you uh, when you have unfair uh, unfair sentencing. I mean, when you, when the poster child for unfair sentencing and the reason that all sentencing for all crime should be, uh, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, normalized. When you look at the crack to powder cocaine that she was talking about, you're talking about uh, a 100 to one difference in the sentencing for the exact same thing. And what does that? I mean, when it all boils down to, it comes down to here is the sentencing for black defendants and here's the sentencing for white defendants and that is what uh, what glares uh in our justice system and what has to be dealt with what has to be fixed and you can't you you have there's there's so many people who are you know go against like um uh fam and the and the the organization that uh that carries with uh, that say well, no, you can't just make it a racial thing. Well, you have to deal with the with the uh, 500 pound gorilla that's in the room. You have to deal with that. You have to say this what this caused disparate sentencing among black uh, defendants and white defendants. You have to deal with that. And without dealing with that, you can never get it fixed. That is one of the that is one of the the biggest issues on the table that we've seen. Well, we're going to address it on the other side of this break. Coming back with us, uh, we're expecting to have conversation with Molly Gill. Uh, Director of Federal Legislative Affairs. Uh, She works with federal legislators, affected family members, and other criminal justice stakeholders to promote sentences that protect public safety and that are uh, proportionate to the offense. Serves also as commissioner on the District of Columbia Sentencing and Criminal Code Revision Commission. Folks, I'll tell you what, interesting conversation, but definitely some optimism that there are people out there doing some things to, to, to reel this in. We're coming back here on AJC Radio talking about in the injustice of sentencing in America and its judicial system. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of AJC Radio and a campaign that we have started that is underway entitled Spotlight on Capitol Hill. This program is new to AJC Radio, but it is an exciting time when we take a few moments every Thursday evening to highlight members of Congress, their initiatives that are not only important to them, their constituents, and the nation as a whole. We invite you every Thursday to tune in to AJC Radio to hear your congressman or your senator and their initiatives that are here to shape a nation and to bring about change. We invite you cordially, and as we fight for justice, as we seek justice daily, we'll come together as not only the American people. Join us every Thursday for Spotlight on Capitol Hill. God bless you, and as always, God bless America.
Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight is no exception, as we have had the privilege of talking to to Kara uh, Gotch. I got that. I thought about the gotcha. And uh, I'll tell you what, she's given some insight tonight, Dennis, on this issue. But we don't want to delay uh, in in bringing our other special guest, Molly Gill. Uh, And she is, as I said, doing some great things as well. And Molly, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And we're we're glad that you took some time out of your evening tonight on a fall evening. There's a lot of things to do on the evening time as fall hits the country. Uh, But uh, Molly, we've been talking about, I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far, uh, in regards to this sentencing problem uh, that compounds other problems and puts our judicial system in disarray. And I'd like you to just introduce yourself uh, to our listeners, and I'm going to give you the floor, and we'll get into some dialogue uh, with you on this. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Molly Gill. I'm the Director of Federal Legislative Affairs for a group called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAM. You can check out our website at www.fam.org. That's F-A-M-M dot O-R-G. And uh, FAM has been around for 25 years. We were founded in 1991 by a woman named Julie Stewart. When uh, she got a call from her brother out in Washington State saying, hey, sis, I've done something really stupid. I've been growing marijuana in my garage, and I got busted by the feds. And uh, she said, you know, that is really stupid. Um, I can't believe you did that. But, you know, he was a first-time offender. Uh, He didn't have any 
uh, guns or use any violence. Um, and she thought, you know, probably he'll just get a year or two as sort of a wake-up call, you know, a year or two in prison. And that is, in fact, what the judge in his case wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, she went to court and, and the judge said at his sentencing, you know, I, I think you deserve a year or two in prison, but my hands are tied. I have to send you to federal prison for five years without parole. And it was just such a shock to Julie. And she thought just how un-American that was that, you know, here people go into a courtroom and they expect the judge to be able to look at all the facts of their case, uh, all of the circumstances of their life and come up with a sentence that fits the crime and fits the person. And in fact, our judges can't do that. Our Many uh, states in this country, as well as the federal government, have extensive systems of mandatory minimum sentences for often drug crimes, gun crimes, um, and, and that list is expanding. Uh, lawmakers uh, like these laws. They, they see them as a way to sort of appear tough on crime and uh, sort of score easy points with voters, and, and uh, you know, they, they often see a, a you know, perhaps an area of crime going up in their community and they think, let's just pass a mandatory minimum and that'll make it go away. That'll solve our problems. And as we know, it doesn't solve our crime problems because they're very complex. And so we often see, you know, people going to prison for far longer than they deserve and getting unjust punishments. And of course, this has ramifications for us as taxpayers. Prisons aren't cheap. They don't grow on trees. And now we have to send people to prison uh, who may not need to be there, and we have to keep them there longer than they may need to be there. So, uh, you know, for the last 25 years, Sam has been working with Congress to try to get them to get rid of those drug laws um, uh, that put her brother, uh, Julie's brother, in prison. And we've been working at the states trying to get uh, their legislatures to get rid of their mandatory sentencing laws as well. Oh, that's awesome, uh, Molly. And we did have... uh... Someone from FAM on our show, uh, we dealt with mandatory minimums in, at length, uh, and we respect your organization uh, tremendously uh, for Thank what you, you over there. I mean, this is something that's critically important. As an advocacy group, I see here that you've appeared as an expert on mandatory, on mandatory minimum sentences, sentencing law, executive clemency issues on CNN, Headline News, NPR, Al Jazeera, NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News. You are getting around and getting the message out. Uh, so we definitely salute your efforts and the work that, that you're doing uh, as being a part of FAM. It's, it's critically, critically important uh, that we address these issues. I was talking on the, with our last guest in regards to you, in regards, I think something that's going, gone ignored uh, in spite of the mandatory minimums, because this is what we ran into in a case in Colorado uh, the case, uh, the men known as the IRP-6, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, these six men uh, have, have been in prison for four years. Uh, but the judge, Christina Guayo, she's a federal judge in Colorado that has shown a clear pattern of disparity in the sentencing process. These men, we contend as an advocacy group, and they contend innocence. They were not guilty of anything. And our system is proving to fail its citizens. Uh, at times, but the sentencing here, uh, attorney Mark Garagos made the statement and uh, Judge H. Lee Sarakin said it's the most outrageous sentencing that he has ever seen regarding a case of this matter, a white collar crime, seven to 11 years for these defendants who didn't have a criminal record, had done nothing. Mm. 
mm-hmm. what, what is FAM doing? I know, again, you focus on mandatory minimums. They say there's sentencing guidelines that they need to follow. But then within not too long after that, somebody comes with a more egregious case, very similar to the IRP-6, and they get almost a sentence cut in half. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I don't know all the details of the case that you're discussing, but, you know, you mentioned the sentencing guidelines and and mandatory minimum sentences aren't the only things uh, guiding uh, or rather coercing judges at sentencing. Uh, We also have this set of advisory sentencing guidelines, and uh, it's been around uh, almost as long as the, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws. And, um, you know, certainly those guidelines, uh, the idea is that you give judges guidance in how to sentence, um, and they're also flexible enough so that judges can tailor them to individuals and to special circumstances and try to create a punishment that fits the crime. And, and, you know, I think it's just a, you know, the guidelines aren't a silver bullet either. They're, you know, I think we have sort of this idea uh, sometimes in this country that sentencing uh, will always be perfect, or that if we just tweak it or twist it enough that it will always be perfect. And and it's not going to be perfect. It's a human system. It's run by human beings. So it's going to be flawed. And I think the conversation that we're finally uh, starting to have again in this country after really 30 years of not talking about this at all is what kind of sentencing system do we want? What kind of sentencing system is going to be transparent, going to hold people accountable, uh, going to treat people like individuals, uh, but also, um, you know, recognize that uh, people abuse power. Judges can abuse power. Prosecutors can abuse power. And so what we need is, a, is like the rest of our government, a system of checks and balances where no one person in the, in the courtroom has too much power. And, you know, that's part of the problem with mandatory minimum sentences is that they took all of that sentencing discretion that judges used to have and they transferred it over to prosecutors. So now if a prosecutor decides to charge you with a charge that has a mandatory minimum sentence, well, your prosecutor has just become literally your judge, jury, and executioner because he's also just picked your sentence. And that's not right either. So I think what we're, we're looking for is, is, again, a balance of power. You know, judges need to have discretion. They need to have flexibility. They need to have guidelines guiding them. There needs to be an appeal process where people can appeal sentences um, when judges get it wrong. And there, there is an appeal process as long as you don't have a mandatory minimum. So that's what we're working towards is, is trying to get rid of those mandatory sentences, trying to even out that power in the courtroom, uh, trying to create a system where every sentence gets this kind of check and balance accountability uh, held up to it. And Molly, uh, this is Cliff. You know, I think uh, another piece of the uh, mandatory minimum and disparity in sentencing and the power that the prosecutors have is that uh, when it when it comes down to it, the the nuts and bolts of the issue is that there is no accountability for this for the prosecutors, uh, you know, give or take uh, of a very small amount. I think the most that we've seen a prosecutor um, actually get incarcerated for was a few days, maybe a month or so uh, in, in jail for a very egregious, just outright breaking the law, uh, causing another person to, uh, to go to prison. But if they didn't have the, the uh, quote unquote blanket immunity, if they had to be accountable for the fact that they lay out these charges that force the mandatory minimums, 
that, you know, they say, well, hey, we we had a person who maybe was found with, uh, you know, 10 grams of of uh, crack cocaine. And then we added the fact that, well, we think this person could have been involved uh, in some gang activity. And we also think this person could have been in a block radius of a school or something to that effect. We have video footage of them where they sell in the crack cocaine that they were caught with at the school at that time. We don't know, but it adds that charge. So the prosecutor gets to lump all these things on and, and be as creative as they want to and gets to the point where they become vindictive to ensure that the sentence that they want against this person uh, basically, uh, you know, trumps up their resume, per se. And so as far as FAM's position on the uh, the immunity of the prosecutor and the accountability of the prosecutor, as well as the judges, because, you know, the judges, like you say, they do have discretion. And uh, sometimes they let personal issues uh, or feelings get in the way. And they use that discretion in the opposite manner that they should when their discretion should be to help a defendant. Sometimes they push harder to um, to push that defendant harder and deeper into the system. So what is your position and maybe FAM's position on the uh, immunity of these prosecutors and judges when they are found to uh, to be conducting, you know, uh, misconduct? Well, we don't really have an official position on prosecutor and and judge immunity. Um, Again, I think what we are in favor of is is a system where, you know, there isn't sort of this sledgehammer in the courtroom and those sledgehammers are those mandatory sentences. And, you know, certainly one of the things that gives us really grave concern is the fact that when a prosecutor has mandatory minimum sentences, they can often create what's called a trial penalty. And so, you know, they'll say to people, well, you know, I'm going to charge you with this, and it carries a a five-year mandatory minimum, which may be plenty bad in and of itself. And then they'll say, but if you don't don't plead guilty and cooperate with me, I'm going to add three more charges, and, and, you know, I'm going to charge you with a gun charge that carries a five-year mandatory minimum, and then I'm going to, you know, charge you with another drug charge that carries a 10-year mandatory minimum. And before you know it, you're looking at a 30-year mandatory minimum and uh you know we have most people don't know in this country they they think that it's like television that it's it's you know courtroom trial drama and in fact tv is the only place you're going to see a courtroom drama these days um because the uh, 97% of people are pleading guilty in our courtrooms in America and mandatory minimums are contributing to that and you know it's it's interesting you have some some very sort of interesting uh, justices on the Supreme Court, Justice, the late Justice Scalia, you know, had talked about um, ha- how important it is to have trials, how important that is to sort of the functioning of our court system, and that that's a skill you don't want the people in the system to lose. You know, we're, that's a sign of regularity in our court system. And so it, it should concern all of us when people go to court and one side is, is, has got this sledgehammer in their hand and they can essentially, you know, shut the whole system down and and produce some really unjust results uh, in exchange. And, you know, people talk about, oh, well, you know, a lot of prosecutors, they, they want to keep mandatory minimums. And they say, well, that's that's what the president's commutation power is for. Let the president fix it. You know, he can fix the sentences where we might be a little too zealous. And I, I don't think that's enough. You know, I think President Obama has been the most generous president using his pardon power to let, you know, I think he's up to 800 people now, letting them out of prison early and, and giving them fairer sentences. But 
But that's really unusual. Winning a commutation from the president is like winning the lottery. And justice shouldn't be a lottery. It shouldn't be a lottery. It should be a fair and transparent system. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, uh, Molly, and what do you do? And and we're facing, as you say, there are challenges uh, in this system that we're faced with. What do you say? So you say, for instance, you have the mandatory minimums enforced by let which is the most insane thing I've ever heard that a prosecutor uh, becomes judge and jury. He's not going to be uh, fair to say, well, let's treat this defendant fair because he has one goal in mind to convict. So how do you empower a prosecutor with that type of power? Secondly, then if you don't have the, then you have the problem with crooked judges that take, the law, you give them too much discretion, they abuse it. How do we find a balance? And I think it goes to your point, Molly, a, a, a system of checks and balances. If the president of the United States is held to a system of checks and balances, where the Congress of the United States can impeach a president for conduct, the president who holds the most powerful position in the land, how can you tell me that a judge can sit and not be accountable, that a prosecutor can have immunity and not be gone after when the president of the United States can be set in a situation and impeach conduct unbecoming. How do we then give a judge or a prosecutor more power than the the president of the United States? (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, this is something that people experience firsthand and they, they call our office and, and it is very Kafka-esque to them. You know, they, they almost can't believe it. They're, they're going through this system and they're saying, this prosecutor's saying that he's going to charge me this way and that it carries a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. Is there anything I can do about that? And I, I'm always so sad to take these calls because I have to tell them, well, actually, no, there really kind of isn't. You know, you can... There are a couple ways out of mandatory minimum, but you know, if you can't, if those don't help you, then you're you're just kind of stuck with this prosecutor's choice. And so, you know, I, I mean, the solutions to this are, are very hard. You know, we we would like to just repeal mandatory minimums, have an advisory guideline system. You know, everybody can appeal the sentence that the judge imposes. You know, the prosecutor can appeal it, the defendant can appeal it. And, you know, the appellate courts keep the lower courts accountable. And, you know, right now we do have that system in place, like I said, when there isn't a mandatory minimum involved. And uh, I'll tell you the truth. Um, a lot of times when a judge uh, gives a sentence that uh, prosecutors think is too low, the prosecutors appeal, and they win 65% of those cases on appeal. So that's a pretty good batting average for the prosecutor when we're worried about leniency. And at the same time, we've had cases where judges have uh, gone below the, what the guidelines called for, recognizing that you know, this prosecutor got a little overzealous in this case. And those decisions have been upheld. The higher court has said, yeah, this, the judge got it right. The prosecutor's asking for too much time. So uh, again, it's, it's not perfect, but it, it, I think there has to be that kind of give and take in the system. And right now we're really just, um, I think, trying to convince some holdouts in the system to, to let go of those mandatory sentences that you don't need them. Um, you know, prosecutors, uh, I, I can't, you know, bash prosecutors too much. My first job was as a prosecutor and I, I knew some really good ones and they, they care about the community. They're tr- trying to 
do their job and keep us safe. And there's certainly a role for the, for them to play in the system. But, you know, frankly, I think some of them just love mandatory minimum sentences too much. And they, uh, they like that they make their job easier. And, um, and, you know, we need to sort of help prosecutors give that up and, and help prosecutors understand that, you know what, you actually don't need a mandatory sentence to get someone to plead guilty. The truth is 97% of everybody pleads guilty because, uh, you know, even if there isn't a mandatory sentence that they're facing, and that's because people are guilty, it's because they can't afford to go to trial, it's because of, uh, they, you know, they, they just want to move on with their lives, it's for lots of, lots of reasons. And so I think what we've seen in the Obama administration is, is pretty encouraging. Um, Attorney General Holder instructed his prosecutors, you know what, stop charging mandatory sentences for these low-level people, and we're told that uh, mandatory, the use of mandatory minimums has gone down 20% in the federal system. Um, you know, that's, that's a positive development. I think there's some culture change that needs to happen in prosecutors' offices where they, they go back to sort of the, the value they're supposed to be pursuing, which is prosecutors aren't supposed to win long sentences. They're supposed to win justice, justice yeah. for the community. And sometimes that means nobody gets charged. Sometimes that means a person gets probation. Uh, sometimes that means that the person only does a little bit of time in prison. And I think that, uh, you know, we do need to sort of, you know, move the prosecutor community back to that justice first approach and away from, frankly, this sort of leftover from the 1980s where the thought was, if, if it's not a long prison sentence, it's not a win. Right. And, and what you end up having, uh, like you stated before, where they... 90% of the trials are affected by, uh, you know, a, a plea bargain. And that is, uh, that is outside the realms of what the justice system is supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to have your day in court, but what the prosecutors and, and those who, um, you know, kind of enjoy the, the funding by their state or the federal government to say, Hey, you know, we need to deal with crime, but what you end up having is uh, them making the argument that, well, the courts are overloaded. We got too many cases. We need, we need to get these plea deals. We need to get these cases. And, and so they make the argument that, you know, we have to do it this way to, to get the caseload down. We have to do it because we don't have enough choice. Uh, we don't have enough judges. We don't have enough prosecutors to, uh, to really try the cases and we don't have enough of, um, you know, court appointed attorneys, we don't have enough of them to give them the time to try these cases. And a lot of that on the surface, on the face of it may be true, but people are people and human nature is human nature. And you end up having some prosecutors, I'm not going to say all of them, but you have some of them and, and a percentage of them that is much too high where they abuse that portion of the sentence of the system and they they use mandatory minimums. They use plea bargaining to uh, to go after, like I said, pumping up their resume. And you know, 2014. And I'm, I'm sure you know this stat, Molly, was a, a record year for example of exonerations. People who were actually in prison for and and they never committed a crime. And the percentage of those that people who pled guilty who had never committed a crime was was astonishing to say that we have let out a record number of people because from the uh from the actions of prosecutors 
in, in some parts, and I'm not saying that sometimes the prosecutor thought he was doing something wrong and just made a mistake. Sure, those cases are out there. But from prosecutorial misconduct, judicial misconduct, or the judge just ignoring what's going on, or uh, vindictiveness by either one of those parties gave us a, a year of record exoneration. So that means we were putting people in prison for no reason at record numbers. And, you know, one invalid conviction is is uh is too many and it it just it speaks to the uh the whole credence of uh a fam that these things these things need to be abolished mm-hmm. yeah i i agree i mean i mean i think the we have a sort of false sense of security about our criminal justice system and and there's actually been some some messaging studies on this that it's really important how you talk about these problems with people because when you start saying things like the entire system is broken, uh, you know, researchers have actually found that when you use language like that, people start tuning out and they stop listening and they start feeling like it's this, this overwhelming problem. How can it possibly be solved? I just want to check out. I'm going to go walk back to watching television. And, you know, so I think as, as advocates, we do have to be really careful to you know, highlight the things that the system is doing well and highlight the areas um, where we need improvements and talk about them in a measured way. And I think that's important to keep people engaged on the issue, to keep people, to keep people feeling empowered in their, their ability to change things. And, and I do think that a big part of that is um, just getting people to you, you don't have to say that all prosecutors are evil people um, or, you know, th- there's, uh, you know, prosecutors are just running amok and doing whatever they want. You know, there are definitely good people working in the trenches and doing their best. And so I think it's, it's important when we talk about these problems to talk about, you know, we're not saying that the system is entirely broken. We're saying we can do better. And, uh, you know, that's something that I've seen in my work as well is, is um, you know, if, if I go in and talk to certain members of Congress and start saying, you know, all these prosecutors are, are crooked and they're, they're abusing mandatory minimum sentences, well, a lot, of pro- a lot of members of Congress are former prosecutors. And so they're going to stop listening right there. So I need to, you know, as advocates, we need to come in and say, you know, it's what prosecutors are doing is really important for public safety in America. We think there's a better way they can do it. We're seeing some problems in the system. We're seeing some imbalances of power. And we, you know, Congress, you need to come in and fix these laws. And so, you know, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people do live in a fantasy that our system is perfect. I, I think it's also incorrect to say that the system is completely broken and it's important to strike the right balance so you can keep people engaged in working for change. Well, without question, Molly, and, and, and to echo that, I think what, what shocked uh, a Just Cause as an advocacy group is that we heard the outrage from members of Congress that the system, at least perception, they say all the time, perception is everything. And I think when you live the trauma of, of injustice, when you walk through it, I personally was wrongfully convicted in the state of Colorado. I did seven years for a crime I never committed, and I was totally exonerated. Uh, I'm going to see things from a different lens. Uh, because of the injustice that I suffered. And I think, as you say, there's a balance there of sensitivity to those that have walked that road. If I go to a family member who 
who has a loved one who sat in prison for 20 or 30 years and they were exonerated, they, they're going to be a little bit more angry. They're going to be a little bit more, they're going to feel like the system completely failed them. So I think the conversation, mm-hmm. as you say, and it's a good point made, uh, the conversation fits for whatever audience that you're speaking to. Uh, and, and at one point, if you show insensitivity to the family member whose dad or grandmother has been locked up for 30 years, they're going to look at you like, what are you even talking about? That the system is right. broken. You know what I'm saying? So I think, I think it's yeah, good. Yeah, I, I mean, bringing stories ahead. into this debate is, is what Sam has been doing for 25 years. And I'll, I'll share some of them with you. Um, you know, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you had to go through the experience you went through of being wrongfully convicted and then having to do seven years that you didn't need to do. Um, you know, those, those kinds of stories are important for people to hear again, to know that the system isn't perfect. And, you know, we need to shake up this, this sort of, um, uh, you know, this, I've got the blinders on approach to looking at our criminal justice system and wake people up to the reality that injustice is happening. And, and there's really no better way to do that than stories. And so if you, if you visit Sam's website, you can read our prisoner profiles. And we have stories about people who are just doing ridiculous amounts of prison time for uh, crimes that they committed. And, you know, the people on our website are, are guilty. You know, they admit that, it, you know, they, they aren't wrongfully convicted. They, they were rightfully convicted, but they're still doing way too much prison time. And, you know, so we, we have people like, you know, Mandy Martinson, who was a a first-time offender. Um, she became addicted to drugs after she got out of an abusive relationship. Uh, the boyfriend was a, a drug dealer. He was giving her free drugs. Uh, he lived at her house for a month. He got busted. And when the FBI came in and found all of his drugs and guns, they charged Mandy as well. And they held her accountable for all of the stuff that he did. And, you know, she went to court and she got a 15-year mandatory minimum prison sentence, and she's almost done serving that sentence now. You know, we have, um, you know, people like Jaqual Clark, who, uh, and such a common story, a woman who was uh, dating a, a man who was a drug dealer, and, you know, she would help him out. She'd run errands for him. She'd run drugs around town for him. Um, he got busted, and she didn't want to testify against him. She didn't want to take the stand, and, and, go through all the risk that often you have to go through testifying against other people. And because of that, the, you know, she didn't cooperate. She didn't play ball with the prosecutors. She's ended up with a 10 year mandatory minimum sentence. So, you know, again, we, we have to, um, I think use stories to open people's minds about the flaws in the system and keep those minds cracked open uh, so that people can understand that change is possible. No, Molly, I, hey, listen, you're, you're, you're speaking to the choir tonight on that one. Uh, I'll tell you what, this is, this, is, this is good dialogue, and I appreciate you taking time out of your evening uh, to talk to us. And hopefully, we're hopeful as an, as an organization, uh, Just Calls AJC Radio, to work with you uh, together. Together, as we as was talking to Kara earlier, gosh, uh, making the statement, we got to come together as well, advocates and, and do what we can to work together. Anything that we can do to... Uh, promote fam. We're going to do it. Uh, we have a great deal again of respect for what you folks are doing. And we, by no means do we make take, you know, take that lightly. And we appreciate you uh, taking time to do this. We really do. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show. And I'm, I'm so glad you're covering this topic and um, you know, your listeners uh, are just as important to this, this battle. We're not going to win this until everyday people start caring about the issue and start contacting their 
legislators and their members of Congress and saying, you know, what we need to even up the scales in our of the scales of justice in our courtroom are out of balance and we've got to, you know, stop taking away these sledgehammers from prosecutors. We've got to take away these, these sledgehammers from prosecutors. No, oh, no, absolutely, Molly. Listen, we hope to have you back on our program as we deal with tough issues every day uh, and every week on this program. Uh, but I'm going to be in touch with you offline. I'm going to see whatever we can do as an organization to support what FAM is doing. We appreciate you so very much and have a very, very safe and uh, good evening, okay? You too. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a mountain uh, that we're going to have to climb and get through the, the, the weeds, the trenches, if you will, the, the muddy waters of injustice. Tonight, we take a look at the sentencing. Uh, we're going to go on the other side of the break. We're coming back with what you didn't know about the IRP-6. And we're going to give you an announcement of a show coming up on Tuesday entitled, The Prisoner Has Something to Say, The Voices of the Unheard. We're going to hear their voices, and we're going to hear the voices of the IRP-6. This is Tuesday, a very special AJC Radio program. We'll discuss that on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? 
has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody. It'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. And welcome back into AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And I'll tell you folks tonight, this has been an awesome topic to get into. Uh, discussion uh, definitely needs to be uh, talked about. We'll take a moment right now to thank our, uh, our very special guests, Molly, uh, Molly, Molly Gill, excuse me, and Kara Gotch. Uh, done some things, doing some things that are really there to impact the nation. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I guarantee you we're going to have those ladies back as we get into discussion. Uh, We're going to talk further about Tuesday's show, but you don't want to miss it. The prisoner would like to have a word, and we will hear the word of the RP6 and those that have been forgotten, and in this case, white-collar victims of injustice. We're going to deal with that here on Tuesday. And I'll tell you what, the statements made by the RP6 at sentencing moved me to tears, and they are powerful. You don't want to miss that program. And right now, we turn our sights on what you didn't know about the RP6. A just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the RP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just an aside, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us for these unbelievable events 
unfolding. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we live, prayed, and worked together that we should end up dying together, because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes, and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testified. And then Gary objected. A Donnybrook broke out because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper, and I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story. Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy. Go to YouTube search the race card you don't want to miss it some people think that business is a game and what we have learned is that business actually is war when they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? Mm. And then all of a sudden, your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were uh, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare. Crying children 
left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org. Sign the petition now. America's future depends on it. Tonight, we address an issue that we have addressed in the last two, what you didn't know. There seems to be a problem with untruth, and it's been carried out by Sean Johnson, a.k.a. Sam Thurman, uh, who has used a name on Google. Uh, You won't find it out there now because we, again, began to attack the untruth. His statements about the IRP-6, his statements about uh, the Colorado Springs Fellowship Church and its pastor, uh, who happened to be the church and pastor of the IRP-6, with, which basically came with complete contradiction, Cliff, to the truth. And we are bound to push the truth on this program, and we're going to do that tonight as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing that you know, a person that you thought stood with you for so long uh, can be such a such a tremendous traitor. Uh, but the good thing about, um, you know, Sam Thurman's situation is that, like you said before, his uh, his words betray him because he he spoke the truth on this show and told exactly uh, what was correct, what was right. And we have him on file, his his voice, his words saying exactly what the truth is. So for him to go out there and try to spread lies now is just he's only doing a disservice to himself. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, his own words arrest him tonight. He spoke ill about the RP6. He spoke ill and for, for personal vengeance, not because it was the truth, simply to do something vengeful and hateful against this organization, against Pastor Banks, Colorado Springs Fellowship Church, and the IRP Six Men. Uh, We're not going to put up with it for one bit. Let's hear what Sam Thurman, a.k.a. Sean Johnson, had to say. And so even with the IRP Six case, now you have a grand jury. The purpose of the grand jury is supposed to be to investigate the IRP Six and IRP Solutions. Well, If you've followed this program before, you'll know that we've talked about the fact that there were two grand juries in this case. The first grand jury heard from several witnesses, and they could not come back with an indictment because it is a debt collection case. They saw it for exactly what it was. Uh, Dave Zappolo, who is one of the IRP6, he was told that he was not a target of the investigation. He's sitting in prison today. Because they brought charges on him. Now, Dave Zappolo took in a binder to the, to the grand jury and showed them exactly what IRP Solutions were doing. The prosecutor obviously did not like that. So then, you know, uh, Dave Zappolo gets wrapped up into it. Our judicial system should not be set up uh, for the purpose of taking vindictive uh, action against someone that just because they put you on the spot 
and just because you have the power in the deep pockets to do it. That's not what our system is supposed to be about. So the first grand jury said, nope, no indictment. There's no crime here. This is a debt collection case. So they impanel a second grand jury. They only call one witness, who is FBI agent Robert Moen. And, uh, so, and after that, as you would think, they got their indictment. Now, here's the kicker. During the, uh, one of the trials, and you, it, it was the Lawana Clark trial, and Lawana Clark is going to be joining us here in a moment. Uh, but during the Lawana Clark trial, the foreperson of the grand jury was asked, do you recall who the target of this investigation was? And what was her comment, Cliff? Yeah, the, the target of the investigation, the first name that came out of her mouth was Rose Banks, who was the pastor of Colorado Springs Fellowship. And, and Ms. Clark, this is, this is Sam. Um, on, on the, uh, thanks for joining the, the program. But uh, uh-huh. even with you going to, to prison on a perjury charge, I mean, we've heard time and time again that no one goes to prison for a perjury charge. And, and then you just you shared the fact that there was an expert that even reviewed, accused you of doing, and the expert said that, no, Ms. Clark did not do what you're accusing her of doing. Uh, how the federal gov- government targeted Colorado Springs Fellowship Church, its pastor, some of its members, all as part of, uh, under the cloak, if you will, of an investigation that was being conducted uh, against the IRP Solutions Corporation and the IRP-6. I want to remind you that the IRP-6 have now uh, been incarcerated for nearly three years after a wrongful conviction, which uh, a just cause continues to fight uh, on behalf of. Hey, Lamont, you know this thing about the IRP-6. This is an excellent example of the things that's gone wrong with our system. How can you have six innocent men sitting in prison for something that they did not and, you know, when you have an entire three and a half weeks of all the rest of the transcripts available, how can you miss the piece that will exonerate these guys uh, to, to bring about an, an indictment? You have one grand jury. They said these guys didn't do anything. Well, you got a second grand jury where you call only one witness. There's one word for that, Sam. Insanity. Cover up. Insanity. Cover up. Justice. Where are you? We need an answer. Well, there you have it. And I'll tell you what, pardon the theater on the last clip, but I'll tell you what, Sam Thurman, a.k.a. Sean Johnson, is saying some things. Dennis, he's telling it exactly how it is. You can't get that back. Oh, no, you can't get that back. Everything he said was true. So whatever lies he's telling now, I mean... I could do it. I, I I don't get it. Everything you just heard was true. And, and no matter what you do, you cannot. I don't care how you come back. You cannot. You, there's no way you can refute. Well, he the de- truth. he defended Lawana Clark. He defended the RP six. He defended Rose Banks, pastor of Colorado Springs Fellowship Church. Sam Thurman, your words are against you. And I'll tell you what. The truth of the matter is, the RP six are innocent. We will not tolerate or put up with nonsense at AJC Radio. I'll tell you that right now. We will address this type of untruth and corruption. Cliff? What that reminds me of is somebody making a testimony in open court and then come back and say, I want to recant my testimony. With, With all the evidence and facts, backing up their testimony and say, 
I want to recant what I testified to. Well, it's too late, and your credibility is shot when you try to come back and say, well, I want to change what I said. Well, it's, it's over. Well, stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. We'll continue this discussion on Thursday evening of what you didn't know about the RP6. Have a good night. Stay safe, America, as we continue to bring the message of justice all around the world. Good night. I'm joined today by Van Jones, who's president of Dream Corps, also a political correspondent on CNN. We're continuing our discussion of the American prison system. Uh, Van, we recently had Johan Harian, who wrote a really interesting book, uh, not only about the misunderstandings around addiction and how that leads into uh, the, the over-incarceration of nonviolent drug offenders, but also about the racially tinged origins of the war on drugs. I want to open it up to you first. When you think about prison reform, what are the most important elements to be looking at? Well, I mean, first of all, one thing that's very clear is that uh, the amount and rate of drug use is fairly constant across all demographic groups. Um, I I went to Yale, for instance. Um, Probably 80% of the campus, maybe 90% of the campus were uh, technically nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, can kids go to college, especially fancy colleges? They quote unquote experiment with drugs. Everybody knows that's going on. But we would see the police cars with their lights uh, flashing go past our campus where all this drug use was happening four or five, six blocks down to the housing projects and arrest kids the same age, uh, literally within eyesight of each other with less money and fewer drugs And those young people wound up getting 10 years, 15 years, 20 year sentences. Whereas the worst that might happen to a Yale undergraduate engaged in the same behavior would they would have to go to rehab. So we all know, and I've told that story a thousand times, nobody's surprised. We've just sort of come to accept this sort of new Jim Crow, as the author Michelle Alexander puts it, uh, where some people are branded as felons, Uh, punished, taken away from their community, and then when they come back home are forever labeled for doing things and engaging in activity that we all know is happening on Wall Street, uh, is happening in country clubs, is happening at the Yacht Club, is happening on Ivy League campuses, but there's no uh, sense that those people should all go to prison. And so that's why the the hypocrisy of the drug war um, is is a, a stench really in the nostrils of God and any person who's remotely fair-minded uh, would say that we should be doing for poor people's kids at, at least uh, the same kinds of, of positive things we're doing for rich people's kids. When rich people's kids get addicted to drugs, they don't go to prison, they go to rehab. When poor people's kids get addicted to drugs, they don't go to rehab, they go to prison. Something wrong with that. What's the role of mandatory minimum sentences in all this? Because on the one hand, we hear anecdotally about individual judges excusing child rape um, and and kind of circumventing uh, mandatory minimums in certain ways, while at the same time we see mandatory minimums used to, to give really long jail sentences, prison sentences to nonviolent offenders.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.